So I rented rooms, big time banker friend of mine, very successful. His name was Jason. First friend I ever had in Charlotte pulls me aside and is like, hey, I know you're like renting rooms. He's like, I'm just curious. He's the numbers guy. He's like, how much are you like, how much is the whole house renting? And I like did some math and I was like, I don't know, man, this house is like, I guess if I count myself as a renter, I'm in the primary bedroom. I guess it's like 2,850. And for whatever reason, it just kind of blew his mind. He was like, man, it's so cool. Like, because I would tell them how easy it was to fill up with tenants. And I told him how much fun I was having, like hanging out with my housemates and stuff. And it just kind of blew his mind. And it blew my mind that it blew his mind. Because he was like, that house would only rent for like 1300 bucks normally. Yeah. And so I just being crazy and obsessive and, you know, I like to make money too. I was like, well, I wonder if I could do, because I only had four. It was me plus three people. I said, I wonder if I could do five people in a house. And then I was like, I wonder if I could do six. Mm. I was like, what if seven people could share a house? What if eight people, what if, and again, there's a much longer story here, but like, what if nine people? And then I'm like, what if I could just go back to my roots, eight siblings, two parents, 10 people in a house? Last two houses we launched were 10, were 10 rooms, right? So it's like, wow. oh, wow. This is shared housing at a little bit of a different level. Welcome to the Collecting Keys Podcast, the show where you'll learn how to use real estate to create massive income, not just passive income. Real estate doesn't have to be a get-rich-slow game. Listen to the country's top real estate operators, and you'll have all the tools you need to replace your W-2 income and go beyond in under 12 months. Ready to take things to the next level? Let's jump in with our hosts, Mike DeHaan and Dan Austin, for today's episode of the Collecting Keys Podcast. What's going on, guys? On today's episode of the Collecting Keys Real Estate Investing Podcast, we have Sam Wiegert, who is an incredible entrepreneur and a massive owner of these co-living rental properties that you've probably heard people talk about you know, on social media and different things. But he is a very legitimate operator with hundreds of homes and hundreds more under management doing these like sort of rent by the room co-living model. And you know, people, when they hear these kind of things, they typically think about it's like a halfway house. So there's like people that are sort of like down on their luck or, or lower class that are living in some of these properties. But he talks about explicitly how he builds these things out to be like a co-living experience. And he really optimizes these kind of properties to be for high quality people who just want to save some money, want to collaborate together. He goes into how he operates them, how he screens tenants, how he finds and builds out these properties. And it is just a really awesome conversation overall. You know, and then before we even get into the co-living stuff, he talks about his experience growing and scaling and exiting from a martial arts studio that he actually sold just seven weeks before recording this podcast. So this dude's like a total entrepreneur. His passion really comes through the show and he has so many incredible pieces of knowledge about how to exactly be an entrepreneur, grow these kinds of businesses, and scale these co-living opportunities. And as we get through kind of like the end of it, he talks about some of the numbers of these deals. Let me just put it like super briefly. Some of these houses, he can make four to $5,000 of a net cash flow from a single property. And this dude has like 200 of them. So you can do the math there. This guy definitely knows what he's talking about. So anyways, guys, you should definitely reach out to Sam after the show. He is a really, really awesome resource and he would love to connect with you about how exactly he sets up these homes. He actually has a whole sort of like service and additional group where he helps people find these kind of properties of some of the interests in pursuing. So hit him up there. And then besides that, everybody, go to collectingkeys.com and uh, you can check out our own group there as well. 
our new scale community where we teach people how to scale their off-market acquisitions so they can grow their real estate portfolios. We go to collectingkeys.com slash scale. You can check that out there. Side of everybody, share this with your friends. It's a great one to share to people that are trying to find their next phase of real estate and enjoy this really awesome show with Sam Wiegert. All right, Sam Wiegert of Charlotte, North Carolina. My man, I'm super excited to have you on the show. You are kind of one of the uh, the folks that I've met over the years where I'm like, dang, this guy's like doing some stuff, like some big stuff. So super excited to dive into that today. Uh-huh. So for people who may have not heard about you before, let's give like a high level overview of exactly who you are and what your business looks like. I love that intro. I've never been introduced the way that way before. Like, hey, this guy, he does some stuff. Like, that's cool. I actually <laughs> like it. It's one, one of my favorite ways I've been, been introduced. So thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah, guys, super honored, Dan and Mike, to just to be on the show and to share a little bit. High level view of me. And I can go as deep or as, as little or as much into my story and my background as you guys want. But built, scaled, and as of like seven weeks ago, fully exited a chain of martial arts schools. So that was my main gig. That was where I cut my teeth on entrepreneurship, trained martial arts. I'm a fifth degree black belt. I can kill you with this finger kind of stuff. Ooh. And through that period of time, started investing in real estate and kind of fell into this idea of shared housing. Co-living is the new hip up and coming term that people are using, but it's really rent by the room. And so I've scaled that model and have teach people that model and I'm working on some ground up development of that particular model and manage those units as well. And so kind of all in on this model, it's a, it's a way to solve affordable housing. And so that's what I do right now. And I think that's what we're here, we're here to talk about as, as well as real estate in general. Absolutely. There's a martial artist um, I follow on Instagram where I used to, his name is Master Ken. Have you ever met this guy? Yeah, I've met him. Oh, you have? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh man, awesome. Go, go look him up for our listeners if you haven't seen him. He's a real yeah. martial artist. Is that like one of those like fake old dudes that like pretends to block people? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> He's got this video that's like a hundred ways to strike the groin. Yeah. That's the video everybody should start with. It's He's actually a damn good martial artist. Oh, really? But he makes... Like, yeah, he's like super good. He's like ranked in all these styles, but he makes so much fun of martial arts. Yeah. First, I hated Mm. him until I met him. And then I was like, all right, the guy's okay. Yeah. (laughs) He's like going so over the top with the gag that he's behind that you're just like, you can't take him seriously. Super over the top. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's that's funny. I think I've seen like those videos get shared around. But when you don't usually see that a lot, like martial arts, right? Where like it seems to me like a very serious discipline, right? Like that you're following when you're when you're practicing these things. And so like he's definitely the antithesis of what you'd expect. (laughs) I mean, I can get behind that. Honestly, Dan, that's kind of like us with property you know, and, and real estate investors were around here like totally telling crude stories and like <laughs> getting weird about some of the things as opposed to some people that are so like straight laced with their suits. Right. We've had dudes that like showed up to this podcast that have on like a button up and like a tie. And I'm like, come on, bro. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> we should have instead of like, there's like bigger pockets, which is like the straight laced version. We could just call our podcast the Dirty Pockets from now on. That reminds me of an Instagram video I saw literally, I think it was just yesterday where this guy was like, guy like gets out of his bmw and he's like how you know an agent is brand new and will not sell your house and he's like <laughs> yeah, right. and then he's like how you know the agent's gonna like sell your house in two days and he's got like stuff all over his shirt he's like shorts <laughs> the t-shirt he walks out oh true man so true yeah but no, that's awesome man so obviously you want to dive into your real estate stuff yeah but really quick let's talk about your martial arts studios and what like sort of scaling that and exiting that from an entrepreneurial side stand because you know, obviously everyone listening to this show is interested in the real estate part, but yeah, yeah. a big part of what we dive into, you know, and what we teach in our community and these different things is how to be a business owner 
And the crazy thing about business is there's a lot of stuff that translates, whether you're trying to grow a real estate business or a martial arts studio. Yeah, for sure. So first off, I'm assuming you got into that because you did it as a child. Yeah. Right. And then growing and scaling and exiting that, like, what was that process like? Because especially when I think of like a martial arts studio, I'm usually thinking of um, Johnny, what's his name in Cobra Kai, who's like- Cobra Kai, let's go for the win. <laughs> he's like a washed up guy yeah. who goes and gets a place in like a strip mall. And then like just wants to see kids kick each other in the head, but doesn't actually know how to run a business. But I'm drawing a massive blank though. Who was like the really rich guy in Cobra Kai? The guy that set up the really nice chain of studios? Oh yeah. What's his name? Yeah. He was what? Gosh, dang, I'm drawing a blank too. I think it was me right now. I'm, we'll figure it out. There's the guy who like opens in the strip mall and that's kind of like back in the eighties and nineties, right? When mm-hmm. martial arts wasn't a commercialized kind of thing. It was yeah. people teaching out of their basement. Terry Silver. Terry Silver. So Terry Silver would be more, I mean, it's terrible because they kind of make him look really bad in the show. But that was probably more applicable to what we do, like super nice studios. It's a little bit more of a commercialized product. We're still trying to teach really great values. And and again, that show is probably the worst analogy I could make for what we (laughs) used to do right now. But But it's most people's level of contact. So I assume that it's fiction, you know. Yeah, totally. So ultimately, martial arts was the business that really, so I was, I was training when I was young. I was homeschooled, big family, eight kids. I always tell this as part of my story. And so I really, I lacked a lot of confidence. I was home a lot. I was home a lot with my, with my family, just, just my family. Like we lived in the country and my parents were like, we don't want the government to educate you. So we're going to homeschool you. And I mean, the school system actually like sued my parents. This was probably, you know, 30 some, when my parents started homeschooling, this was probably closer to 40 years ago, 35 years ago, when it was like, wait, you can't do that. My parents had to get a lawyer and they fought it and they were like, under this religious exemption thing. And so obviously now with COVID, like homeschooling's taken off and it's like a thing now, right? I was about to say, you're what we would call a progressive. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and my parents were that before it was cool. You know what I mean? Before it was, and they were really, really, really ahead of the game. And they were also doing crazy stuff. They were like, my parents were straight hippies when I think about it now. Like they were juicing, like before there was a juice mm-hmm. thing on every corner now. And it's like all kinds <laughs> of stuff. Okay. But they got me in martial arts for confidence, for discipline. I was just kind of a wild child. Got into a ton of trouble. I just had tons of energy, always bouncing off the walls. And so, you know, big shout out. Martial arts changed my life in so many ways. And that's why I dedicated 15 years. I'm still involved in the the staff members that have purchased the schools and things like that. But martial arts changed my life. It made me, I don't know how else to explain it other than it gave, it made me somebody, you know, homeschool, introverted kid, 13 years old, a little awkward. It was like, oh, I can protect myself. I'm learning to strike hard. I'm learning to be. It was just so, 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 so good for me. So I'm highly recommend it for anybody, adults and kids alike, but definitely for kids. And that's really what our chain of martial arts schools focused on was we found a niche. There's really two ways you can go in the martial arts industry. You can go like MMA, pound ground. We throw you in the cage and then get you ready for the UFC. And you can go that direction. Problem with that is your demographic is going to be people between the ages of like 15 and 30. Right. So when people have the least amount of money in their life, when they're the most transient in their life. So from a straight business perspective, that has challenges is just the straight truth. Since we're on here, we're talking just business, not just martial arts. And the other thing is that type of training is a lot more intense. You're going to get hurt. It's not if it's a matter of when you're going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. And when you get hurt, you don't come back unless you are very dedicated to getting into the UFC. Right. And that's a very, very, very small percentage. (laughs) So our model was. Parents with kids between the ages of four and 13 that want their kids to have more respect, say yes and no, sir, yes and no, ma'am, get along better with their teachers and parents, stand up to police, have some self-respect. And then we would rope the parents in and be like, actually, we're a family academy. So all of our parents 
brain with their kids. Mm-hmm. And of course, it blew their kid, the parents' minds at first. But a lot of these parents, you know, maybe they haven't worked out in a while or they have some sort of routine. But And so we just really built a chain around this family concept that was families all training together. There's no age segregated classes. I could have a six-year-old and a six-year-old in the same class. And martial arts was the means to the end. It was what got him hooked, having fun. But really, it was it was a personal development program. Now, granted, they got a black belt. We still trained joint locks, arm bars, and headlocks, and and pressure points, and all of that. It just wasn't the difference between us and the MMA schools. We didn't then go get in a cage and we'll see you in ten minutes. Like you get to train it and practice it, but you could still be a doctor and a lawyer and go home, go to your work nice. the next day, and not have a black eye. Yeah, that's cool. So, so you took the no mercy part out of the uh, Cobra Kai saying. Exactly. It's, it's just strike first to strike fast. <laughs> yeah, right. Shoot the leg. So, okay, this is interesting then. you, you, I'm assuming you started with one studio. Did you start ground up all five or did you buy, then build? Or like, what was the model there to get to five? And like, I guess why as well? I bought the first one from my instructor when I was 15 years old, actually. My parents loaned <laughs> no, me 15 no grand. Way. I bought it for 15 grand. I was in a small town, Amherst, Virginia, 2,000 people. School had about 100 students, had a big lease, big space, 6,000 square foot space, way bigger than was needed, but he, that's what he had. He just thought if I built it, they would come. And like, we all know like sales and marketing, if you're in business, you're in, you know, he would always tell us you're in the business of sales and marketing of martial arts products, services, supplies. You know, he'd be like, what business are you in? And be like, well, I think I'm in the business of teaching classes. No, you're in the business of sales and marketing. If you don't do a good job of that, nobody comes, right? Yeah, hey. So really drilled that lesson in from a very early age about sales and marketing. That was very, very valuable to start my business career off with a mentor like that. But I bought the first one. Then I moved to the town of Charlottesville, Virginia, which is where UVA is, University of Virginia, very popular school on the East Coast here. And then that one, I started from the ground up. So that one, I literally rented a 20. So this proves my concept about sales and marketing. I went to a hotel and I said, hey, will you rent me one of the little spaces, the smallest meeting space they had? It was like 20 feet by 20 feet. And I rented it two nights a week. And I think it was like $75 a night. And I only did it for like two, three hours to teach classes, but it was open 24 hours. So people could come in. I left my little sign there and I built it from literally scratch. I'd go out into all the parking lots of all the grocery stores and I would just walk up to people as they were putting groceries in their car and I would stop and I would bow in my, be in my full karate uniform. Oh this man. This is kind of like straight out of Cobra Kai now that I'm thinking I love it. it. <laughs> I'm like, excuse me, I'm doing a survey. Would you mind answering three quick questions for me? And I give him this little survey and I don't want to go too crazy deep into this, but that's how I built this second school. And that school, I'm really proud of. It went on under my brother's leadership, who when I left, I put him in charge to become the top 1% of all schools in the nation in terms wow. of income produced, students it had, and just in the black belts that it produced. And it produced some, some great champions as well in the sport karate world. And so really proud of what that one had become. That was ground up. People were coming to this little school, enrolling, paying in full for three years just because of the vision that I set and of charisma. And so then I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. I bought two schools here. I bought three schools here over time. And then I built three more here. And so from the ground up that we kind of started from the ground up. So yeah, it's kind of a mixture of everything. And um, that uh, that's a challenge. You said, how do I build? I mean, built it painfully. It's a brick and mortar, anything. I like some people can make it work really well. It, it was a very difficult, I think, it, I think it set the stage for the difficulty of being an entrepreneur for me in a lot of ways. Yeah, right. That's so awesome though, man. Cause like you did what I think most newer entrepreneurs need to do is you figured out how to make money first. And then you worked on kind of like growing it and everything after that. So you had the vision, you went and you sold that vision to people, people bought into that. Yeah. And that's really no different than any other service or business. So many people, when they try to be a new entrepreneur, 
They go and they like find the person on Fiverr to make their logo and their website and all that sort of thing. Like, and now I'm going to sell these widgets, but no one wants your freaking widgets. Like sell some widgets first, sell a service first and then do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like we see it with, with investors. Yeah. You know, you have so many people that will, they will go and they will announce that they are starting their brand new investment company. They've never even made an offer on a property yet. Mm-hmm. They've never, you know, they've never like analyzed a the deal. They've never walked a hoarder house. They've never been cussed out by a seller. Like, how can you honestly say that you want to start this business if you haven't experienced it? And I mean, and you did like the epitome of guerrilla marketing, dude, of like getting out there yeah. in a gi and bowing Straight to people up. in a parking lot. Yeah. How, how old are you when you're doing this? 35? No, I'm kidding. So, dude, I started when I was 15 doing the <laughs> bowing 15. and stuff. Oh, wow. And I would, when I first started, I would have tears. Like I would cry. I'd go in. So I'm an introvert and I'm just like, people were rejecting me, rejecting me, rejecting yeah. me, yelling at me. And I'd go back into the office and be like, just have to regain myself emotionally and be like, go back out. Because... I had to get five appointments a day. I love it, dude. My instructor, who was also like my business mentor that I was paying at the time, was like, yeah, you don't leave until you get five appointments. If you're at CVS, like, I was like, how long do I need to stay? He's like, you can stay an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. You can stay all day. You got to get five appointments, buddy. You can get five appointments. So I'll tell you what that does, though, man. That makes you insane at persuasion. Because, like, mm-hmm. you need the appointment, and that person's giving you one. If, you have, if you've already been there three hours, like, that next person that comes out is giving you an appointment. So many good business lessons from that, just in terms of persuasion and necessity, right? But to your point, Mike, I think people major in minor things. I think Tony Robbins mm-hmm. says that a lot. Like yeah. when you major in things, my instructor had a comment. He would always say, Sam, you're spending too much time on busy work. And I'd be like, well, what is busy work? I don't know. How do you know it's busy work? I'm actually really busy. He goes, I know it's busy work because I look at your numbers. He goes, busy work is anything that won't make you money today. Mm-hmm. That, that was his kind of extreme definition of like, Otherwise, it should be done after 9 p.m. was what he would, because our schedules were always a little later. And so our prime time was like anywhere from 1 p.m. to, to 9. That's when we could sell memberships and people would come to school. He was like, you do all that crap. You run credit cards and send emails and open your inbox. He would always tell me too. He had this funny saying. He'd be like, if you get back to me during prime time too fast, I know you ain't working. He's like, if I text you <laughs> at 4 o'clock and you get back to me in 30 minutes, I know you ain't working. Like you should yeah. not be getting back to me. That is busy work. Go sell some memberships. So just these like hardcore kind of like straight up, no holes barred business lessons that were like really made you think. And he was very old school. So not all of it, I think, applies 100 percent. But those things that I just shared, I've definitely kept with me, you know, even even into the real estate business. I mean, what you're saying from what I understand about business is, I mean, I've learned this kind of the hard way over the years is like marketing and sales are business. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what is the lifeblood of it. So you need to be doing those at a high level. And I really love this. Like, this sounds like your coach, your mentor, what I can't remember. Is he the owner of the the first studio? Is that how you, yeah, right? Yeah. He's driving some seriously good lessons in you, into you. Yeah. Yeah. It was invaluable, which plays right into this point of, I know you guys mentor people in real estate. I mentor people in real estate. It mm-hmm. plays right into this point of like anybody listening to this, like, Step one, do not pass go, do not collect $200 unless you have a mentor. Like I would not even, uh-huh. I wouldn't have gotten past one location if I didn't have someone driving these last. I was 15 for God's sake. And a lot of us are, fifth. we might not be 15 by age, but we're where I was. If you're starting real estate investing or we, we don't have that knowledge, whatever it is that keeps us back from skip. And so by far, someone that's willing to tell you the freaking truth and like rile you up a little bit, that's yep. the best person to have on your team, right? Like, so- Definitely a step to scaling for sure. Can't can't talk about it enough. Absolutely. I think, can I share one lesson that I learned along the way though on that business that I think would help people? Sure. It came from a, a seminar I went to, but it's, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk is big on, I had an opportunity to meet him a couple of years ago. And the number one thing he drilled into my head was like self-awareness. 
He's like, man, you got to know yourself. Otherwise, you're going to be out there just spinning your wheels, not doing shit. And I said, okay, well, like, how do you know? You know, how do you get to self-awareness? And he goes, well, you got to try a lot of things. You got to fail a lot of times. You got to really take that time to reflect. But I think in business, the self-awareness comes down to knowing three things. What, like, I would say business personality are you? And this has helped me a lot. And I think there's three. Number one, there's like the artists in business. And I think the artists, I'll use the football team as an analogy. The artists are the guys playing the football. They're playing the game. They geek out about the crap. And we all know people like, I was listening to a podcast by Tom Bilyeu. Tom Bilyeu is a great business guy, but in his core, he's an artist. He geeks out about like how to ask questions and how to respond. Like he's an artist. He's a creative artist. So that's the guys that geek out about how to play a game. And then there's the second business personality, if you will, is manager leaders. And manager leaders are the guys that geek out about two things, or guys or girls, systems and people. And they're just like, they like to play chess with it. Well, if I move this person, and they're, of course, if I use the same analogy, like the managers of the football team, they're like, I'm going to trade that guy for this guy. I don't really care about the emotions. I'm just trading them because I need to do this. And then I'm put here, here, and then that's going to build my team. And then you have the third personality type in business, which is like I call the Donald Trumps of this world. They're just, they're pure entrepreneurs. And I don't mean a lot of us are entrepreneurial, but in our core, we're not entrepreneurs, right? We're just like, they would sell any business in a heartbeat. There's no emotional attachment. It's about the money, you know, and that's it. And that's the guys that own the teams, mm-hmm. right? They're selling them. Mark Cuban just sold a big piece of his team. Like, it's not like, it's less of an emotional game. And I think if you can understand, the E-Myth talks about this so well, artists all of a sudden be- decide to become entrepreneurs and they're like, wait, this doesn't work. I think understanding who you are in your core lets you know who you need on your team. And I'm an entrepreneur in my core. I like to make money and I like to make deals. I'm not really an artist. I never was the best martial artist. I didn't geek out about the kicks and the punches and the things like a lot of my guys would geek out about for hours. I was like, they'd go to these seminars. They're like, well, that's cool. Like, that's a punch. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> yeah. And I wasn't a good manager leader. Like I, I had to bring people in that were like, hey, let's move this person here. Let's move him to that. I just wanted the thing to make money. I think when you understand that, you can really play to your strengths. You're way the free happier, and you know who to go out and get to partner with. Yeah, that's some great (laughs) insights. That's very valuable. That's super valuable. I know you got me sitting here thinking, Michael. Well, which one am I exactly? I know I'm. I know I'm not the artist, but am I the uh, making money one, or am I kind of the manager one? Probably somewhere in the middle. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's super interesting. That I appreciate that. Awesome, man. So, so you grew that chain, you sold the business, you said seven weeks ago. Uh, congratulations on that too, by the way. I personally would love to dive into that, but a lot of people here want to hear about the real estate. Yeah. So we can chat about that offline, about your, your exit, what that looked like. Mm-hmm. But along the way, you got into this co-living, rent by the room style of real estate investing. So first off, what exactly drew you to that initially? Because I feel like that's a pretty new concept. I know you've been doing it for a little while. Yeah. And how exactly did you do it in a way that's allowed you to scale like you have? Because I know that you have a very successful business doing that. The origin story in like a minute or less is basically I rented rooms. Keep in mind, I come from a big family (laughs) because I didn't want to live alone. Okay. And like I wasn't used to living alone. I'm always used to my siblings picking on me. Right. So I rented rooms. Big time banker friend of mine. Very successful. His name was Jason. First friend I ever had in Charlotte pulls me aside and is like, hey, I know you're like renting rooms. He's like, I'm just curious. He's the numbers guy. He's like, how, how much are you like, how much is the whole house renting? And I like did some math and I was like, I don't know, man, this house is like, I guess if I count myself as a renter, I'm in the primary b- bedroom, I guess it's like 2,850. 
and for whatever reason, it just kind of blew his mind. He was like, man, that's so cool. Like, because I told him how easy it was to fill up with tenants and I told him how much fun I was having, like hanging out with my housemates and stuff. And it just kind of blew his mind. It blew my mind that it blew his mind. Cause he was like, that house would only rent for like 1300 bucks normally. Yeah. And so I just being crazy and obsessive and, you know, I like to make money too. I was like, well, I wonder if I could do, cause I only had four. It was me plus three people. I said, I wonder if I could do five people in the house. And then I was like, I wonder if I could do six. Mm. I was like, what if seven people could share a house? What if eight people, what if, and again, there's a much longer story here, but like, what if nine people? And then I'm like, what if I could just go back to my roots, eight siblings, two parents, 10 people in a house? Last two houses we launched were 10, were 10 rooms, right? So it's like, oh, wow. This is shared housing at a little bit of a different level. And uh, I know that sounds insane and crazy to some people. And there are lots of systems. So I usually get two things when I tell people that I help 10 people share a house together. I either get like, A, how do you keep all the tenants from killing each other? A, right, yeah. right. And then the second thing I usually get is like, that sounds like the worst product ever. Like who would ever want to live in there? And so demand is higher than it's ever been. And we could talk about all kinds of affordable housing stats for that. That's number one. Number two is the product that we produce. If you were to walk into one of our co-living homes, you would think it's a five-star Airbnb. And I wish I could, I can even show pictures, you know, at some time or send you guys pictures or whatever. But like you walk in. The, you should send us some photos and we'll put them in the show notes for people to yeah, see. Yeah, for sure. Be great. For sure. I can show you some common areas that you're just like, what? And so that, you know, when you have an amazing product, people want to live there and it's a reduced rate. It's about half of what, you know, half to... 75% of what they would pay, you know, at a studio apartment or for housing in another area, in a nicer area. You know, maybe it's a little higher than that. Maybe it's closer to 75%. There's utilities in there you got to work out because they get utilities included usually on their co-living rent, but then if they've rented a studio apartment, they got to add utilities onto it. So there's a little, little yeah. discrepancy there. Cool. And then we keep people from killing each other by having this amazing vetting process where we share with them a vision of creating community housing where people are just encouraging each other it's a positive place and it's safe and it's quiet and it's clean. Those are, by the way, the three key things you have to do in co-living to scale it. You have to be able to do safe. You have to be able to do quiet and you have to be able to do clean. So if you can vet for those things and have systems around keeping it safe, you know, door locks on the doors, obviously full background checks for someone coming in, evict, no weapons in the common space, things like that. If you have systems to keep it safe, you're going to win. If you have systems to keep it clean, we now have professional cleaners go into the common spaces once or twice a month. We have a checklist yes. that everybody has to support with or they can opt out for a fee, right? Systems like that. And then quiet, head, headphones hours after 10 on weekdays, after 11 on weekends. So everything goes to Bluetooth. You can watch your TV, no TVs in the common space. We used to do that. We thought it'd be really cool. Now we don't because like, it just causes commotion. And then obviously things like taking care of parking and making sure it's in the right neighborhood. You're not putting these in A plus or even A minus neighborhoods, right? You're putting these in C or B neighborhoods. That kind of fits the neighborhood. So we can go into the weeds on that with any questions you guys have, but I just wanted to kind of address maybe some of those big things that I know or know get asked when, pe when I say 10 people sharing a house together. Are these 10 bedroom houses then? You're converting. You're converting garages, basements to get the 10 bedrooms. And do you have to add additional bathrooms? I'm curious of what the transition like if you could maybe go through what a typical acquisition would look like and what you do to it to prep, it would be really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, for a 10 bedroom, you know, you need at least, the formula goes like this. If you have a 1500 square foot house, it's going to be four rooms. I've looked at thousands of houses, you know, you guys have as well. So, you know, there's just like some themes that start to play yeah. out. Every 250 square feet you add to that house, not as in like an addition, but if you find a 1750 square foot house or 2000, another house, that's you're going to add a room. So 1,750 square feet is five rooms, 2,000 is six rooms, 2,250 is seven. 
25 is eight, 2750 is nine, and then 3000 would be 10. And I know that just unless it's like this huge open concept with 30 foot ceiling, that's just like really hard to break up. We're looking for more of these houses that are a little bit more boxy. They've sat on the market a little bit longer, they're a little bit older. And yeah, you're converting dining rooms, you know, you're putting walls and doors, and you're trying to keep at least a three to one bedroom to bathroom ratio, never higher than that. Lower than that is fine. If you have a two to one, I mean, in a perfect world, some of the development projects I'm working on right now, it's private baths. Everybody gets a private bath. That's perfect. Wow. Oh, nice. That's really hard to do in a single family house that you're converting, right? I mean, you you could, but it'd just be odd. So we just try to make it kind of still flow like a house. We want it to feel like a house, you know, home. Home is a better word because we really do a great job of the interiors and make it really, really, really pop. And then, so we'll put the money into the doors. We'll put the money into the bathrooms. And then uh, one of my favorite things to do right now is to take the garage and convert that to common space because it's cheaper to do, you know, I can stick a little heater in the window and have a heater AC and it's good, at least in North Carolina, right? And then I convert almost almost all the space that's in the house that's already heated and cooled very well into bedrooms, except for the kitchen, obviously. Now, some companies will tell you don't have a common space. Some of the biggest companies will say, we don't want a common space, this causes issues. One of the ways that I separate myself from those companies is by making this model more about community. Mm-hmm. I require, for my company to manage a property like this, I require a, a common space. And we put desks in there so it becomes a co-working space as well. We make it really nice. We'll put some quiet games in there and just a space where people can kind of connect. And that's a big piece of what we're trying to create versus just room, 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 right. room, and it becomes a little bit more like a rooming or a boarding house. That's not yeah, what we It seems do. like there's probably yeah. two models here. One is like you just said, a rooming boarding house, and one is more lifestyle community driven. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Great, great way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it's it's like more of a hospitality business at that point, as much as like a rental property. And I think that what a lot of people in traditional real estate investing they think about this, they are trying to view it strictly as a long term rental, where you just like have this giant house and you're putting a bunch of people that may or may not be crackheads in a house together, and hopefully they don't stab <laughs> we'll each other. Halfway houses, right? Yeah. It's like half, it's what we call halfway. <laughs> But like with what you're providing, we know where you're making the living area sort of enticing. Yes. You know, you're having a cleaning service that does it. You're having a list of roles and responsibilities who have to volunteer to do. You know, you are having a level of community around it. It's funny. It, it almost sounds like a like an apartment complex or something that you live in like in college. Mm-hmm. Like, a, like a theme house, you know, or is that that's a thing that people would do? But in the right areas, I could totally see that being desirable. It's It's funny, even like thinking about myself when I graduated from college or I was younger, I would have totally been into something like that because it would have saved me money and it would be a great way to like meet new friends, especially if you were new to an area. Absolutely. Yeah, you're 100% right. With this style of model, like I know for a fact, this would be something that would vary in success based off of the town that you're in. Because for example, in more rural towns or like where we're at in in Spokane, there just isn't like a, I was like a culture around that. So it'd be kind of a weird thing to sell. But like more specifically, how do you deal with, I assume there's like density restrictions or things around like these style of houses. Like you can't just throw up 10 adults with 10 cars living in a house in a single family residential neighborhood, or at least I wouldn't assume that you can. So like what sort of challenges do you deal with on that end? It's a great question. And we could spend every second uh, talking about this. I'm going to give a high level yeah. overview of, of how the big tech companies are, are doing this and how we're modeling. My company is modeling after them. I think they ch- recently changed these rules. But when you walk into an establishment that doesn't have an ABC license to sell alcohol, 
but they do serve like beer and wine. They make you buy a, have you ever done, they make you buy like a $1 membership at the door. And now mm-hmm. because you're a member, they can kind of skirt around this restriction and they can serve you beer and wine. So that's one example. I'm going to tie it in in a moment. That's one analogy. The other analogy would be similar to what you said, Mike, about, you know, being in college. Like would be a fraternity house. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got members of a club and these members of a club have access to this house, right? So in essence, the way that this is working, and, and I had a call, I got on, there's, there's a company out there, the largest co-living company in America right now is called PadSplit. And they're, they're just a management. They don't own the properties where I help people actually find and acquire the properties. But they, I got on the phone with their head legal counsel and said, how many times have you been shut down by a jurisdiction? And they're in price, they have like 10,000 rooms in like 35, 30 cities or something like that. And they said that we've never been shut down. And I was like, okay, tell me what's going on. And so we kind of copied our legal model after theirs. And in essence, it's this membership-based model. It is, you know, I have a company, so I did this in the Camry. I got a company that owns the property and it's going to rent. An LLC in the United States is considered one entity, one person, right? I'm going to rent it to one person and that's going to be another LLC. And this LLC happens to have a bunch of members and those members get access to that. That's the simplest way I can explain it without going into details. So instead of me signing leases with all of my people, I'm signing membership agreements. They're members of this company and then they get access to in the home. And then you could say, well, you know, hey, like you've got too many people living here, but I really don't. I don't. I have members that have access to an asset Mm -hmm. that they're somewhat a part of that they're renting as one person. And there's more nuances to that. And if you maybe have some specific questions, I can go into it. But basically that is general high level view of how some of these things are being restricted. So they're a member. How does this start to affect things like landlord-tenant laws? Can, like, do you have, what happens if you have to evict these people? I assume it's a different process. Uh-huh. Is there any more rules and regulations that you need to follow around, like yeah. allowing them to have, say, like pets or like service animals or kids or like dual occupancy if it's a couple? Like, Because now like a lot of the traditional rules that we have as a landlord-tenant relationship are going to be completely out the window if they're just like a member of your club. If you're a membership-based organization and do not quote me, I told someone the other day I was going to find this, but I do know there is, I'll have to do some more research on it, but there's a U.S. code. There's a a federal law that basically allows membership-based organizations to not be restricted by fair housing laws. So you're technically exempt from fair housing laws if you are a true membership-based organization. Interesting. Because you have to be able to like choose who you let in and who you let out. So yes. And then if you're a true membership-based organization, in essence, yeah, if someone if you terminate their membership or they terminate their membership, then they're trespassing. You move the shit out. Then you just go get the cops. Yeah. So why would I not just turn all of my rentals into a club? <laughs> I, just, I was thinking the same thing, right? They're all clubs now. I think depending on the state, there are some states that have tried to claw some of that back and still apply tenant landlord laws to that. Mm-hmm. I'm in a very, you know, I'm in a very landlord friendly state here in North Carolina. So we don't, we haven't had any issues with it here. I haven't had to do that. But that's, you know, if we're talking letter of the law, right? that's how it's written to work. So I have like a totally in the weeds question that happy to learn nothing about. With this sort of setup, is this still considered passive rental income to the IRS? Or do you have to pay active income on this as basically business revenue? Or can you use passive real estate losses to offset this revenue? Bank? Keep in mind, I am renting my home to the LLC. Yeah, so yeah. you're still ownership of that. So I'm still renting yeah. it. I'm just getting gotcha. all of the dues, right? And that that's what they're paying. Your fixed rent is all the expenses are the same, all that. Okay, yeah. that's it. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's freaking sharp, man. That's awesome. Let's still get people excited. Give us some numbers on this. 
so people kind of know yeah. what exactly you can make from these houses. I know Yumi talked about this a little bit on Instagram and it gets, it can get pretty wild. Before I talk about some numbers, I think when people say, because I think people are really interested in this model, mm-hmm. but they'll be, they'll kind of like hear some of the things we've just been talking about. They're like, okay, like it's a little nuanced. Like I'm just going to buy a single family house and I'm going to let it, you know, break even or net a hundred bucks, right? Like, yeah, because yeah. it's like, oh, at least I'm in the game and I'm buying real estate. And so I think when I start to talk about numbers and people are like, okay, wait a second, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do some nuances, right? Like maybe I'll handle some nuances. And we've created a lot of systems to handle the nuances for you. And then my last like little pitch for people, my little spiel is like, when you think about this model, you'd add two things to your thought process. Number one, you're going into something that's a blue ocean. So think Airbnb back in 2011, when it was getting up and going. Blue ocean is, there's not a lot of people there. Not every system has been solved yet, but that's a great time to be in something if you want insane cash flow, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're, at the, you're at the forefront. And then the second thing I like to tell people is you need to be thinking about what this solves. This is definitely a social entrepreneurship type thing. You are solving affordable housing. That's just not me saying this. That's the U.S. Department for Housing and Urban Development came out in 2021, January 15th, 2021, and said, we believe affordable housing can be solved by co-living. And not only that, we will allow housing choice vouchers to now be used, if you follow this formula, for rooms. Uh, so I can get some, someone that's got a voucher, I can be like, yo, I can rent you two rooms. I'll take your guaranteed government rent. And you may not want to do that. You got to follow their little, yeah. frankly, BS formula on how to value that room. Yes, but it is what it is, right? And like, that's pretty cool. So yeah, so in essence, I'll give you numbers from the last one I launched. It would have normally rented on the open market for probably 2,400 bucks. We filled it in 30 days and it rents for $8,550. Wow. So you are more than tripling, yeah. right, the rent on this particular home. Uh-huh. We're seeing in the market right now, depending on where you are, we're seeing double, triple, or quadruple even sometimes if you get these little niche markets of what you could get for rent on a home. So you're actually able to cash flow on single family homes with people in the homes that are, and they're not like Airbnb where it's like I get in a guest every weekend. We've had people stay 10 years. I've had people uh-huh. with me for 10 years living in the home. So it can become to the right demographic, it becomes all. Yeah. This is where I'm going to live, right? A service worker, someone who's making... Damn, you've been doing this for 10 years. Holy smokes. Yeah, I mean, I bought my first one in uh, 2011. Wow. Yeah. I told you, dude, he's like a OG. Yeah. And it was a real slow burn for a bunch of years because I was building my martial arts schools and whatever, and we yeah. really focused on it now, but... What do you do from an underwriting standpoint? Do you underwrite it as if it was a single family home? So you're not like, I guess what I want to get at is do you overpay for these houses and then put a bunch of money into them so then the ROI is a little different? Or is it like, hey, no, this I could sell this house for the value, whatever, I'm buying it up the MLS, this is its value, and then you have to put some more money into it to modify it? Yeah. How do you come up with this? Me and my students, we represent about a thousand, maybe maybe a little bit more now, but about a thousand doors kind of around the United States, thousand co-living doors. And, you know, we're buying just about everything on the MLS which is pretty crazy to think like I can get a deal that still cash flows uh-huh. 15 to 20, 25% cash on cash on a deal I'm putting 10 to 20% in. And then, yeah, so we're buying on the MLS. We're paying, I would say, market rate. Like, obviously, we're trying to negotiate, but it's on the MLS. So it's going to be, you know, it's fairly market rate. Right. And then we're putting in whatever money we need to to convert. So if we have to add a bathroom or take a, take a half bath and add a full, we're doing that. We're adding the doors. We're adding the, the walls as well. There is a marketplace for cold living homes now. That's just starting. And we did get one bank to commit, a local bank, albeit, but they did commit to us and say, we will value your these homes at a cap rate instead of, this is a bank, frankly, to be honest, I've been working with them for the last like eight years. They've given me millions of dollars to buy these homes. So they kind of get it. They understand the model. They've seen the numbers for a while now. And they're just like, yeah, we'll start evaluating your single family homes based on a cap rate. 
and refinance them based on that, mm-hmm. which is insane. Cause like, if I don't go comp based value, my home, the home next to it's producing 2200, mine's producing 8500. Like, I'm going to get a valuation that's going to be insane based on that. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is I think there's some value in not always having to think, oh, I've got to convert this back to a single family home. I think there is a marketplace to sell it as a cash flowing asset. And if we can get more banks to recognize that, then I think we'll be headed in the right direction. But the truth is, it's way more stable than Airbnb. And banks Uh underwrite based on Airbnb right now. So it's just a matter of time when they're like, wait, 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 wait. We've been underwriting based on Airbnb. Let's underwrite on these guys that are living in these homes for years and paying it as as rent for for a long time. And so that's uh, what I think will come down the pipeline in the next year or two. Yeah, there's so many opportunities for this business tutor. This there's a have you heard of crash pads before? The concept yeah. of pilot crash pads. Yeah. Like, there's so many niches, right? And we've talked mm-hmm. about like, and I would love to get your opinion on this. Like we've been doing like midterm rentals for traveling nurses, but is there maybe even just near hospitals the need for medical professionals to have a crash pad essentially or, or something like that because they're traveling and it just seems like there's a lot of different industries out there now that this would cater to. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, because like you're talking about having the banks sort of recognize it. The reason it hasn't happened yet is like you said, it's still in like the blue ocean phase. They're acknowledging Airbnb now, but they weren't doing that a couple of years ago. Right. You know, it's taken forever for them to be able to do that. And then it's only a matter of time where they do this too. So people that are like in your position, when banks do start to acknowledge it and agree to finance these appropriately, you're going to be Take making off, off like a freaking bandit, man. You might be able to... Right offload all those to some hedge fund for like a massive multiple or even just a local operators that, uh-huh. you know, want to do the Cody Sanchez buy a business. You can be like, here, you want right. to buy an entire group home so true. for a 5X multiple because this will be the return on investment. I mean, that's that's going to be a great place to be in. That's the play. Totally. That's the play. I like it, man. Nice, man. That's that's super cool. So so going into this, where are all your properties based out of? Are they, are they all in Charlotte? My personal ones are in Charlotte and then a town called Asheville, which I was going to address that because yeah. you mentioned Spokane being a little rural. So I launched one. This model works anywhere there's a need for housing. And yeah. obviously, if you know your market. But Asheville is like bougie rural. We, we, we know Paul Xavier down there. We actually Paul, did, yeah. uh, did some marketing and stuff down there for him. Yeah. I'm trying to find some off-market stuff. And uh, like, it's like nice. Like Spokane's more like, so, so the, the joke about Spokane or like thing you see on people's bumper stickers is keep Spokane kind of gross. Like that is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that is where we are. <laughs> I think too, is we don't have like an, a part of town where people desire to live close to, cause like our downtown Metro people are actually like leaving. And so it's not like, you know what I mean? There's not a proximity thing, but there is definitely a lot of need for rent by the room housing. And we've seen it. It's just not like cool people doing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like doing it for the community. They're doing it because they have to. You know what I mean? So that's where I would be skeptical of this, but I, I do think there's probably a growing opportunity. What do you mean doing it because they have to? Child molesters, drug addicts, special needs people. Oh, yeah. God, like they can't get a normal place because they've got something on their record or what. I got you. I got you. I got you. Or they're required to live there. Yeah. Yeah, so we do have that, and that, there are landlords that cater to that. But I could see a potentially a growing need location-based, depending on location in, in Spokane, where this could work. Here's my question. Like, sure. what is the average studio rent in Spokane for a studio apartment? And this, this is, I think, a lot of times what it boils down to. Uh, Probably $900,000. Like it's a nice voice. Yeah, 1000 yep. Okay. So in Charlotte, it's almost double that. Mm-hmm. Okay. For a nice yeah. voice, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so I think there's some, like, if you think about, like, 
where does everybody that works at Target and Walmart and the gas station and put your luggage on the planes and put your tires on yeah. your car that are making between 25 and 60 grand a year, mm-hmm. right? Where are they living? And they're not paying 2,000 or they're not in Charlotte, at least they're not paying 1,800 plus utilities to go live. It's just not right. happening, right? Yeah, totally. And so, but they probably could afford 900 bucks for a decent place. Like sometimes, I mean, they, they used to live a place called Camp Hope, which was yeah. a homeless camp, but they shut <laughs> yeah. it down. Yeah, no. Uh, what Here's what I would say is we do have a, we do have a large, a very large university presence for mm-hmm. adult learners in Spokane because we have a medical school here. We have basically, I think, two or three schools that are offering like medical training and stuff like that. So when I say location-based, I do think for some of those more transient type people that have to be here from an education standpoint, um, want to be near a university, but they're an adult. They're not a college kid anymore. Right. I think right. you could rent those rooms for four to $600 each in a, you know, four to six bedroom home, no problem. I do this rent by the room for a college students. So I have a couple student rentals and it works great. But there's always still a, a weird demand when they graduate, but they decide to stay local and they want to hang. They still want to live with three of their friends, but they're like, what rent's two grand for this place? You know what I mean? And so they, they're looking for a three bed, two bath, but and they don't want it to be in a bad neighborhood. But the prices for that for a college student who's maybe doing an internship and just graduated or starting right. out, whatever, there is that need. So I'm trying to bridge that gap. And I see what you're saying. And it could work potentially anywhere. We just might not be seeing the exact same numbers you are in a really popular metro like like Charlotte. Right, exactly. Yeah, so. The thing is, we very rarely cater to college students at all. That's just not our market. There's whole companies mm-hmm. that just, they focus on that. They can give those people exactly, you know, they can give college students exactly what they want, right? The proximity, the amenities, the, all of that. Mm-hmm. We are, and I would highly recommend anybody going into this model to not niche down too much. I get that a lot. I'll be like, well, I'm going to do nurses. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Uh-huh. Like, if you vet the tenants well, you can just open it up for working professionals uh-huh. and you'll be more full. And I think that is the biggest need to be served through this model is uh-huh. working perfect. We're actually seeing two big groups. We're seeing the people you just mentioned, Dan, of like, they're out of college. They have some debt. They can't really afford. They're in their first job. They're in their second job. They just haven't been able to like crack to that 75K a year job yet. They're still at 50 and they don't want to live with mom. They're still at 50K, but they want to live with mom. Okay, that's that's a whole bunch of people, unfortunately, in the United States right now between the ages of, you know, 22 and 40. Unfortunately, 32, 35, 37, you know? Like that's a big group of people. More and more with just with incomes not increasing as much as housing costs. So that's number one group. Number two group we're seeing is fixed income, 55 plus. Interesting. People that are like, am I living with someone? I got a fixed income. I live on social security. I live on this and I can pay $850 a month, uh-huh. you know, by the way, that's, that's cheap for Charlotte. Sorry, yeah. you guys are doing studio apartments for 900, but like, so I think there's something to that of just like, I think the more open you are to that whole demographic of working professionals, we've found that we just get more leads. We stay more full and it just creates a better product overall. That's my two cents. That's awesome, man. I love it. Well, dude, I feel like we could sit here and talk to you forever on this. You're, yeah, this is a great topic. I love your energy around this. You're obviously so passionate about it and you've built something that's super, super awesome. Thanks, brother. Thanks. So I guess really quick, before we dive into the end of show questions, what'd you say your total portfolio size is now? My wife and I own 200 properties. Properties? Oh, shit. We met 200 doors. Doors, okay. We, yeah. not including like short-term rentals and some commercial spaces that we own that I rent to my martial arts schools, but 
we manage a hundred more and we have 180 in the pipeline right now to come live in the next that are either under rehab or closing or whatever. My company helps people acquire these. Yeah. And then I run a mastermind that we probably between the, in that mastermind, we probably represent about a thousand to 1200 doors around the United States. Yeah. Dang. So yeah, I think it's small. I mean, in terms of the need, we're very, very small. That's still a lot of tenants really is what that is. I'm hearing when you say doors, I'm hearing tenants. That's a lot of tenants that manage. That's a big time. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's small relative to something. It's very, right. very impressive relative to most things. Right. Totally. So, Thanks, brother. Yeah. So that's very, very awesome, man. And then if that doesn't uh, give all the listeners a sort of like belief that you're a true operator, I don't know what does, because that's, that's pretty wild. Thank you. Awesome, man. Well, Sam, I really appreciate you sharing all this information, dude. It's been super, super enlightening. Um, we are going to dive into our end of show questions here. The same questions that we ask every uh, person that comes on the show. And the first one, which is always the group favorite, is what is your craziest real estate investing story? It's gonna be a big win, big loss, crazy transaction. You know, with 200 properties, I'm sure that you have some good stories hidden in there. So I feel like this is where I should like cue my property manager and like she would rock <laughs> in here with some solid there you stuff. Go. I launched an episode on my podcast with her. Her name is Jess and we were, we were hashing out some stories. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I think one of the craziest that I personally experienced though was just when I was living in these homes. So this was, you know, eight, nine years ago when I was kind of building the systems and building the model. I lived with this one guy. I, I just raised the rent and he said he could pay it. And so I was like, okay, you can pay it. And I like didn't have paperwork. I didn't have these membership agreements. I didn't have any of these rules or things that I was telling you guys about earlier. And he just became kind of a crazy person. And I was really into Tony Robbins at the time. And so he would knock on my door. I would like do my bouncing on my trampoline and do my like incantations and say my <laughs> affirmations and stuff. And he, he would say the craziest things to me. He'd knock on my door at like 2 a.m. And I didn't vet him. I didn't do a background check. It was like the worst. I never, this guy never should have rented. He would be like, he'd say the weirdest things. He'd be like, I know what you do in your private time. Your vice is going to kill you. And I'd just be like, what the heck? Like this guy was like, he was coming, weird. I don't know if he was high or drunk or whatever. And then he would, and they'd be like, I know you're trying to be that Tony Robbins guy. You will never make it. And it was just like this weird negative thing. And I would like start recording them and stuff. It's just this weird ass story. I'll never forget it. The day I die, he was just like the negative, his negativity was insane. So that's probably the craziest like tenant story I ever have. So did you end up like what, casing him out or? Yeah, but I didn't have a lease or anything. So like it was very difficult to like try to evict him. Yeah, eventually he left. Took him like three weeks, but yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Dude, that's so weird. Yeah, I was always the weirdos. That's part of the, part of the real estate game, unfortunately. Yeah, man, they're out there. All right, what is your number one tip for a small-time investor looking to scale their real estate business? I mean, I think we've kind of hit on a bunch of them. I would just probably go back to some of the things we've shared. And that is that um, you finding someone that it's so cliche to say, but it is the thing. Like it's cliche because it's true. Like if you don't have, if you right now do not have somebody that is like steps ahead of you in the process, whether that's you guys or someone doing co-living or someone doing wholesaling or whatever, then like you're trying to do it on your own and you're just wasting so much time and money by not having a mentor and someone to guide you on the path. And so that's always my biggest tip is like get a mentor first. Absolutely. I mean, I've got like three coaches. I got like a Tony Robbins, like mindset coach right now. I've got, I'm coaching with Matt King, CEO of GoBundance. So we've got another mindset coach in our real estate course. Like it's just, you know, having that is just so key to look at different, different places if you really want to play this game at a scale level. Yeah. I mean, big picture, I don't think I know anyone 
that I would consider successful that hasn't had some kind of mentor. Mentor or coach or something, absolutely. Yeah, like it's just, it's a necessary thing. You have to learn from somewhere. And the easiest way to get to a higher position is find someone that's doing what you want to do and do whatever you can to you know bring that person value and learn from them. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely agree. It's a great tip. But awesome, Sam. And then last question, where can people find you, follow you and reach out to you? Yeah, real simple. Easiest is probably just Instagram, like at Sam Wegert, W-E-G-E-R-T on Instagram, or we do these free events once a month. There are these five-day challenges where people can kind of find out more about co-living, dive into some more of the nuances of it. So if someone's interested in that, you just have to register, get on the wait list for the next the next one. Uh, you go to scaleyourrealestate.com, scaleyourrealestate.com. Awesome. And you said you have your own podcast as well? We do. We launched a podcast called Scale Your Real Estate. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. Go. Right on. Yeah. Easy to remember. Co-living should be in the name. I think that was a mistake that I made, but it's basically like scale your co-living is really what it's about. Uh, you, you can always rebrand it. We rebranded our show after episode like four, but especially when you're starting out. We used to be the No BS Real Estate Podcast, <laughs> which was a total BS name. Yeah, for like four episodes. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, so. that's a good name. Why did you Why did you change it? Because there were some other white <laughs> dudes that had it. We don't want to be associated with them. <laughs> yeah, the same podcast. <laughs> we didn't even Google it. We just started rolling with it. And then we changed it after like episode four. I'm totally rebranding. Thank you guys for that encouragement. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. So awesome, Sam, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, dude. You dropped an incredible amount of knowledge and I really enjoyed your enthusiasm approaching it. And honestly, dude, you got me thinking. I'm like, it doesn't exist yeah. here in Spokane yet, but why? Maybe it needs to. Maybe it needs to. Exactly. Honestly, we need to go and we have another conversation about that as so well. So what we can do, hey, so. real simply, we can run some test ads before you buy any properties. We, I can, we can send some, this is what I encourage everybody to do in a new market. Like we run some ads, you can run it on Facebook marketplaces where honestly we get most of our leads from Facebook marketplace and you can just, don't have to put in an address and you can, when people respond, we'll send them this Google form and be like, Actually, we're creating a waiting list for this home. Fill out this info. You'll be at the right, top right. of the waiting list. And I ask them like what their budget is and do they know this is co-living and not the whole house for $700? And then like what their date of moving is, who they are, and like little, little in. And anyway, you can get so much data in an instant by creating kind of what looks like a real ad, but it's really just you trying to create a waiting list for your first home. That's a so great simple. way to test a market. I love it. That's right out of the four-hour work week too, which is like my always sort of go-to book. So he talks about how to test these business ideas before you spend too much time on them. But man, it makes perfect sense, dude. I love it. So another tip, right? To finish off. Very, very awesome. So awesome, guys. Well, I really hope you enjoyed this show with Sam Wieger. If you didn't, I don't know what to tell you. Please just unsubscribe from our show because that was about as good as it gets. So there was so much incredible knowledge there. And definitely reach out to Sam. He does some awesome stuff on social media and check out his new podcast as well. Mm-hmm. And if you have any questions about co-living or you are interested in this in your market, he's your go-to guy. So don't be afraid to hit him up. You know, people come on these shows because they want you to reach out to them. So don't be shy. We're all nice. Everyone that Dan and I associate with has some level of credibility. Otherwise, it wouldn't be on here. So don't be afraid to hit up Sam. But side that, everybody, we appreciate you all and we'll talk to you next week. Drop us a five-star review on iTunes and send us a screenshot to Mike at CollectingKeys.com for your chance to receive a free Collecting Keys t-shirt.